They were standing in the middle of the streets with military-style armament. That was the only threat to the people of Burns, and it wasn't the protesters. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Well, well, welcome, my friends. Welcome back to Lions of Liberty, where I strive to advance the ideas of liberty through some great conversations. And we're going old school this week. That's right. I've got two interviews lined up for you. Interviews, what this show was originally built on. This is episode number 194 of this program. And you can find the show notes of today's show, which will be quite extensive, let me tell you, over at lionsofliberty.com slash 194. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible, free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today has quite the diverse background. She is a constitutional attorney and a former prosecutor, a Russian linguist, an army veteran. She is also the host of her own podcast, Liberty First, as well as the author of Not a Living, Breathing Document, Reclaiming Our Constitution. She currently travels the country teaching the Constitution and the history that gave us our founding documents. She is, of course, Miss Chris Ann Hall. Miss Hall, I've just got one question to start things off, and that is, are you ready to roar? Woohoo! <laughs> All right. I've never heard a lion specifically say that, but that's pretty close. <laughs> we will take it. I'm a Liberty Lion. All right. Well, so are we. So this is going to work out great. Now, you know, Chrisanne, I know you've had quite the journey to kind of get where you are today, both in your life journey as well as in your beliefs. So why don't you just start off telling my audience how you first became passionate about the ideas of liberty and the Constitution? We and I first started reading a little bit about our founders. I read a book called Founding Brothers by Joseph Ellis, and then I wrote a book called 1776 by David McCullough. And it really sort of gave me an attachment to them. And I can say quite literally, I fell in love with the men and women who gave so much for us. And I wanted to learn more about them. And so I started reading the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. I started reading their letters to each other. I started reading the books that they wrote. And I realized that they weren't teaching me in law school the Constitution, (laughs) And that sort of made me mad and it sort of ruffled my rebellious feathers. So I began to learn more and more about who we're supposed to be instead of who they tell us that we are. And I also worked for a constitutional law firm for a little while defending people in First Amendment liberties. And so when my community started learning about my practice in constitutional law and my studies, I started getting invitations to come and speak. The local school board asked me to come and teach them on how to have an invocation before the school board meetings and be uh, First Amendment compliant. I had uh, the local grassroots groups have me come teach. I taught the local middle school on the First Amendment. And I was on the local talk show radio about the unconstitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And I was doing all those kind of things. Well, at that time, I was a prosecutor for the state of Florida. So I was working for the state of Florida. And my boss, who's an elected official, decided that he didn't like how I was teaching the Constitution or who I was teaching it to. He said that teaching the Constitution 
demands a limited government is a conflict of interest for anybody who works for the government. Technically, that may be true. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. I mean, the Constitution does dictate the structure of the government. and I suppose it's a conflict of interest for the way most of our modern politicians view their, their role go. in government, I would say. Right, right. Well, that's the whole point. So he uh, also told me he didn't like who I was teaching. He said I couldn't associate with right-wing fringe groups. And so I explained to him quite simply... I'm doing this after hours. I'm not doing this on your dime. And I'm not talking about you or my job. So you can't tell me what I can and cannot say. And he just literally said, I don't care. You can do this or you can work for me. And he demanded that I quit. I refused to quit. And so he fired me. And that sort of launched this whole new direction of traveling and teaching around the country. I, you know, I'd, I'd lost my job and I had stood up against the most powerful man in seven counties where I live. We filed a federal lawsuit against him and forced the state of Florida to settle because he didn't, you know, wanted this all out and dirty public. And I was unable to actually find a job because everybody was afraid of this guy. And so it just turns out that uh, we believe that God had a different plan for us. And we stepped out by faith with no promise of money, with nothing, just understanding that we believe that liberty is a gift from God and that God provides where he guides. And we're in year number six now, and we've never had to charge a speaking fee, and we've never had to make anybody compensate us for travel or expenses and uh, it is something that we're doing now, teaching 265 lessons in over 22 states on average every year. High school, middle school students, college students, adult groups. We teach religious liberty to the churches. I have a class that I teach state legislators. I taught classes in Arizona, Utah, Kansas, Missouri, Idaho, and Oregon. And we're picking up new states every year to teach. And so not only that, I mean, I'm busy. I'm 265 lessons a year means I'm doing this a lot. So we really believe that what we're doing is catching on and the numbers are getting bigger and the crowds are getting younger. And we're just very, very excited about what we're doing. Well, it seems like you really, this was inspired in many ways by the opposition to the constitution that you faced in so many levels, whether it was in law school and them just basically ignoring constitutional law, seems like it should be really the basis for law school in theory, and your superiors just saying, no, you can't talk about that stuff. So why do you think there is so much opposition or even ignoring of the constitution at so many levels of law and government in our country? Well, because I think the people... Americans themselves have become ignorant of the Constitution. You see, we are not a reflection of our government. The government is a reflection of its people. And so what happens is when the people become ignorant of the Constitution, they become apathetic of its principles and they stop requiring government to do things about it. And we stop requiring government to follow it. And then we start allowing government to create exceptions to it. And the exceptions that the government creates always increases their power and reduces our liberty. I mean, case on point, the entire operation of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security is hinged on anti-constitutional principles. And we allow them to get away with that because we don't understand the Constitution anymore and we don't pay attention to the Constitution anymore. And we allow the government to create its own exceptions to the very 
codified limitations that we're supposed to defend our liberty. So, you know, you seem to think most people are confused about the Constitution. I'm sure many of our listeners are inadvertently confused about it in many ways as well. So what would you say is the most common or maybe most important misconception that most people hold about the U.S. Constitution? That it's not relevant, that it was written so long ago that it's not relevant today. And because it's not relevant today, we need to make it relevant And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, one of the classes that I teach is I call the genealogy of the Constitution. It traces the 700 years of documents that created our Constitution. There's absolutely nothing in our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, or our Bill of Rights that's new or novel. Our framers didn't invent anything. But what they did was take 700 years of experience Five documents that created their written constitution. See, the the British constitution was different in ours. It's not a a single document thing. It, It was five documents written over 700 years. And when you learn those five documents over the 700 years, you learn that every aspect of our constitution came from this. And they're not just simply ideas or theories. They're time-tested, blood-bought principles that never, ever change. Timeless principles that can be used in any day to maintain liberty. And so it's not irrelevant or outdated. We simply lack the proper understanding of what it means and why it means what it means. There's a whole history behind why our framers codified the Fourth Amendment, why they codified the First and Second, and I mean, why they codified all of them. And why government is limited. You know, our constitutional republic is not an original development. It is based on an agreement in 1014 with a king named Ethelred, in which the Anglo-Saxons said to Ethelred, we will allow you to be our king on one condition. Your only job is to negotiate with foreign kingdoms and help us organize for our common defense. But you will leave us alone to govern ourselves in our small communities. And that's the very basis for our constitutional republic. The states creating the federal government through the Constitution said, your only job is foreign affairs and helping us organize for our common defense. You will leave us alone in our states to govern ourselves. And when we learn the proper history and the proper applications, we understand that it is relevant today and it will be relevant in 200 years. Well, I can honestly say I've never heard a reference to this King Ethelred before, so I'm already learning something new here today. So I guess in that case, they were kind of more sort of hiring the king as their protector or kind of saying, you are allowed to protect us because we let you or we let you sort of rule over our kingdom, but we actually have the autonomy here. And I guess the constitution is is sort of seen similar. We are autonomous and we create this government, this federal government to watch over certain things for us. Is that the basic gist? Yeah, that's basic gist. The basic gist is the federal government's purpose is to be an ambassador on behalf of the states to foreign affairs. The difference is Ethelred was chosen to rule, and we did not create a kingdom. We created a constitutional republic where the people through their states rule over the federal government. It's why the Tenth Amendment says the powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. It's because in a constitutional republic, the people are the kings, And the states are their knights in shining armor to protect them from the federal government. 
Now, Chrisanne, a lot of people might hear that description and say, well, that sounds lovely. It sounds wonderful, but that's clearly not the way things have actually worked out. So where did things start going wrong with the Constitution? Why has it really not restrained the federal government in the way that you know many constitutional advocates believe that it should or that its intent was to? Well, because the Constitution cannot restrain the federal government. It's a piece of paper with ink on it. What can the Constitution to restrain the government? Can the Constitution pick up a pen and write your representative a letter? Can it sit in your senator's office and demand compliance? Of course not, because the structure of the Constitutional Republic was dependent upon the jealousy and the vigilance of the people. It was dependent upon the states protecting the powers that were reserved to it. And it's the fact of human nature. We've become pacified in our prosperity. We've become lazy in luxury. We've become complacent and compliant in our comfort. And in all of those things add up to more powerful government and less liberty for the people. It's the people and the states that have got to stand up and say to the federal government, no, you are not allowed to exercise this power because this power was never delegated to you. And since this power was never delegated to you, you cannot and will not be able to exercise it within our jurisdictions. And then you simply literally disarm the government of their power by simply refusing to apply with an exercise of power beyond the Constitution. So the FBI the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, the Bureau of Land Management, the Department of Interior, the FDA, all of these agencies and so many more are extra constitutional and unconstitutional. They exercise powers that have not only not been delegated to the federal government, but they have been reserved to the states. And so what has to happen is, is that the people must stand up and tell their states, no, you will not allow this federal government to exercise this power within our jurisdiction. You will not. And you will oppose the federal government's exercise of this power to the defense of our liberty. And that's how it's supposed to work. We can't sit around and wait for the federal government to restrain itself. I mean, that is ludicrous. No government restrains itself because every single government wants to be a kingdom with the most power it can possibly consume. And the only limitation is the people through their states. What sort of enforcement mechanism does the government really have over its constitutional programs if states were to actually stand up and actually rebel and say, we're just not going to comply with some of this stuff, whether it's NSA spying like they're talking about doing in Utah, shutting down their water, uh, whether it's just maybe an unconstitutional FBI investigation? You know, is there anything that states can actually do to stop the federal government from intruding in these areas? Oh, absolutely. They have everything that they can do because the little lie, the little dirty secret of the federal government is is they don't have the manpower or the resources to enforce their unconstitutional regulations and laws. They rely on co-opting local and federal governments to do their bidding for them. And when the local and the state officials and their local law enforcement refuse to aid and abet them in these unconstitutional extensions of power, then they lose their power. The problem is, is that the American people don't see this happen. Even though it's happening, they don't see it's happening because the media will not cover it. Okay. So we cover the things that happen in Oregon because they're full of drama and the federal government looks big and bad and powerful and they can shoot people down in the streets and call people militants and domestic terrorists. Why? Because 
in Harney County, Oregon, we had a judge who was completely ignorant of the Constitution. I mean, he didn't even have a constitutional law class. Uh, we have a sheriff that was completely ignorant of his duty to defend the Constitution of the United States and stand in the gap when the federal government is trying to take the people's rights. And so you have this huge show of federal power in those situations. But we, we don't see are the situations where the sheriff and the local government stand up to the federal government because there is no drama, there is no conflict, the federal government backs down and the people are secure. The media doesn't want to cover that because it doesn't glorify the federal government, it glorifies the local governments and the, our mainstream media in all aspects has simply become a tool of the feds. I'd like to dig a little deeper into what you just mentioned there, the situation in Oregon uh, obviously, it ended in a very tragic shooting of a man, Lavoie Finnicum. But um, can you just kind of detail what led up to that and exactly you know, where this conflict originates from between these ranchers? We also saw it at the Bundy Ranch in Nevada last year. Where does this conflict all originate from where the federal government seems to think that they have the rights over certain areas of land, whereas these ranchers think that they have perfectly every right to use it to, you know, to their own will as well? Well, it originates, once again, through the Constitution. The federal government has expanded its own power through unconstitutional legislative acts, unconstitutional regulations, and unconstitutional exercise of power. The uh, James Madison explains to us, the father of the Constitution, by the way, explains to us in Federalist Papers 45 that property is a power that is reserved to the states and reserved to the people. The only power the federal government has been allowed to exercise over property is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, the power over 10 miles square for Washington, D.C., and the power over land for forts, ports, and dockyards, and the buildings needed to run ports, forts, and dockyards, upon consent of the state and sale of that land from the state. So, Two things have to happen. First, the state has to consent. Yes, we will allow you to have a fort, port, or dockyard here. And number two, the federal government has to actually physically purchase that land from the states. The only other option for land management is through Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, and that has to do with territories. And that's uh, what territories are land that the federal government holds in trust for states in the future. And once a state becomes a state admitted into the union, it is no longer a territory, which means the federal government no longer has jurisdiction over that land. Thomas Jefferson in the first Bureau of Land Management, which was appropriately to govern only the land constitutionally delegated, said that once the land becomes the state, it is to never, ever return to the federal government. And so now we have federal government using clauses and expanding their meanings to falsely interpret the Constitution that says that they can have power over national forests, that they can have power over monuments, and they can have power not only just simply to manage, but power that excludes the states in all these cases whatsoever. And it simply does not exist constitutionally. And anybody who tries to justify the federal lands, they cannot use the Constitution itself to justify it. So what they do is they say, well, the Supreme Court said this, and the Congress made an act that said this. But our framers were very clear. 
that if the federal government can be the ultimate arbiters of their power, if they can decide the limits of their own jurisdiction, then you do not have a constitutional republic. What you have is a totalitarian kingdom, and Jefferson said it has become more venal or just as venal as the powers we separated from. Chrisanne, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into these land disputes in a second. But first, I got to make sure I don't have any disputes with my landlord because I got some bills to pay. So I need to take just one minute out to tell everyone out there about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my health care? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. (laughs) I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500, I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype. So you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary, and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health, or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative, Jeff Cantor, at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Now, many people might not be aware of the extent to which the federal government claims ownership over so much land in these states. Can you kind of give people an idea of the amount of land that the the federal government claims ownership over within the states? Well, it's up to now exceeding three quarters of the Western lands. Wow. Yeah. And they're increasing it all the time. There are crises all over the place. We have uh, this current president expanding land ownership by 90,000 acres in the West And we have also, uh, you know, I mean, those are the big chunks. And then we have also this creep going on. There's a good example of uh, this creep going on in the Red River District in uh, Texas. And I think it's important for the people to understand as well that this is not new. Our landowners have been battling with the federal government for over 50 years for control over their own land. And the interesting thing is, is when you battle the federal government, like the Bureau of Land Management or the EPA, you don't sue them in a regular court. You sue them in a court invented by the federal government called administrative law courts. So if you're battling the EPA or the BLM, you battle them in a court designed by that agency with a judge who is employed by that agency who is to determine not the constitutionality of the agency's actions, but whether the agency is following the rules that it has created for itself or not. It's a ridiculous thing. And so these farmers and ranchers have been trying to play by the federal rules for over 50 years only to find that the federal government is either splitting the baby, saying, okay, fine, you can have half of your land, 
but we're going to let the federal government have half of this land. And then over the years, that half becomes three quarters and it becomes more. And that's exactly what's happening in the Red River District. We've had farmers and ranchers who've been playing by the rules only to see the federal government reinvent the terms of the rules year after year after year to take and consume more and more of their land. We have a family who the owner of the land died and they wanted to inherit the land by the matter of law. So this case went to probate and they put in an, a heritage claim for this land only to find that the Bureau of Land Management also filed a claim that they are a rightful heir to the land. We have the Bureau of Land Management claiming that they are rightful heirs to land when people die. That is ridiculous. Wow. Now, and could you just clarify, I guess, you know, you, you talk about ranchers using their own land. So, I mean, do all these ranchers that are in conflict with the federal government do, obviously, they view that they have the proper right to use this land. I mean, in your view, do they have a constitutional right to use that land because it simply would be unowned otherwise? Or is it property that their families have homesteaded over the years? I mean, is the issue just that the federal government is trying to claim land that it should not own? Or is it more that they're trying to claim land that should be owned by these specific ranchers? Well, it's a little bit of both, actually. So what we have is land that has been used for generations by these farmers and ranchers. We've got to understand the beginning of the Bureau of Land Management. The beginning of the Bureau of Land Management wasn't to manage over, in these specific areas, was not to manage over federal land because it didn't exist to this extent. What we have the Bureau of Land Management to do in this extent was in the beginning, they came to the ranchers and farmers and said, hey, we have some resources that will help you. And we believe that if we can unite all the farmers and ranchers in this area, we can uh, work together to better manage our lands. We can help you be more prosperous and more efficient on your lands. We can help you develop new technology that will allow you to better utilize your lands and maintain the integrity of the lands so you can be more prosperous. And the Bureau of Land Management's coming to the ranchers and the farmers saying, look, and all you have to do is collectively pay a small fee and we will turn that money into resources for ranchers and farmers. We will turn that into education for you. We will turn that into innovation for you. And we will all work together for the betterment of the ranchers and farmers. And so this is how this BLM creep began. Sounds lovely on the surface. Oh, yeah. A service to the people. But as the Bureau became wealthier with this rancher's monies and the farmer's monies, they began to consume more and more power. Well, if you will allow us to manage the land for you, we can free up your time and your resources for you to do other things and expand your farms and your ranches and maybe even spend more time with your family. So if you allow us to manage this land for you. And so it's just the way the frog in the pot of water works and they have just creeped into these people's lives until the ranchers and farmers wake up one day and realize that they're having to apply for permits to use the land that their family has been using for generations. 
Uh, so this was really sold as a way to help the ranchers. And obviously, as we've seen, it's really turned into a contentious situation now. Can you pinpoint any reason that really this seems to, and maybe it's just that it's garnering more tension than ever before, but that it seems in the last year or so, we've really picked up to the point where there has actually been violence over this, or um, in the case of the Bundy incident last year, almost violence or the, the threat of violence, people with guns mm-hmm. were there. So why has this escalated seemingly so much recently? Well, it is because we're seeing it more, but it's also because, remember, these people have been fighting within the system for 50 years only to find the system turning against them. And so what happens now is that they're tired of playing the system only to lose every single time. You see, the administrative law courts let them win a portion of their land. But like I said, over the years, then we have the government redefining what portions mean and taking their land from them. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to participate in these kangaroo courts, these administrative law courts, only to see their families lose everything. And so for 50 years, they've been doing this. And now we're driving these people into a state of desperation right? We are no longer allowing them to keep three quarters of their lands or half of their lands. They're finding themselves having to manage with less than their lands. They're finding themselves being pushed and bullied into losing everything. The government wants to take all this land from them. And all we have left now are the farmers and the ranchers who have resisted for 50 years. And they're feeling like they have no other recourse. We've left them in the state of desperation. And that's what happens when people start feeling like they have no hope. Then hopelessness drives people to do things in desperation. And the reality thing is here, Mark, that if the states and the local sheriffs would step up and do their jobs and defend these people, we would not have violence. We wouldn't even have threat of violence. And I'll remind you that the only violence that happened in Oregon was on the part of our federal government. Those protesters never once raised a gun to anyone. I was there for three days. They moved around the communities. The people saw them every single day. The only violent threat that the people in Burns, Oregon felt was from the local government who had paired up with the federal government marching around that community like they were in Baghdad. I mean, they had penned off the entire courthouse with barbed wire and concrete barriers. They were standing in the middle of the streets with military-style armament. That was the only threat to the people of Burns, and it wasn't the protesters. Just because they had guns didn't mean they had threats. It was the government that was threatening the people. You know, it's really interesting when you say that they were marching around the community as if they were in Baghdad, because, you know, when you said when you take away hope from people, they get really desperate. I mean, the first thing I thought of was our foreign policy. The first thing I thought of was how, (laughs) you know, often the government will invade countries, drop bombs everywhere, destroy a community, not help rebuild it up. And that creates a situation where people are willing to even blow themselves up just because they have nowhere else to go. And I mean, people aren't doing that in Oregon, but it seems very similar in some ways. There are parallels there. Well, human nature doesn't change. And a lot of our activity overseas is completely unconstitutional as well. We are not allowed to deploy troops in any way, shape or form, even for peacekeeping, unless by constitution, there is a formal declaration of war by Congress. The War Powers Act is completely unconstitutional. It's the federal government expanding federal power beyond the limitations of the constitution. 
the president is not the commander in chief of the military all the time. By constitution, the president is only the commander in chief of the military when there is a formal declaration of war. When there is no formal declaration of war, it is Congress that is in charge of the military. So all of these deployments by the executive branch are completely and totally unconstitutional. Uh, Chris Ann, just one question I want to ask you before we sign off. And, you know, in my view, if we are to have a federal government, if it is to have a role in society, that role should be confined, as I'm sure you'd agree, to the protection of rights, uh, the protection of property. And, uh, you know, what I'm curious about is whether you think that there is any role the federal government should have to intervene in states under any circumstances. I mean, let's just hypothetically say a certain state is condoning child slavery and protecting people that are using child slaves. I mean, would there be a role in that situation for a federal government to actually step in and legitimately intervene in a situation such as that? No, it would not. It would be a matter of the people within that state requiring their government to act, you know, their state governments to act in that matter. I would say that it would also be a matter of the other states not invading the state, but participating in what we would call a free market system of the states where the other states would boycott the commerce from that state if they felt like anything that was being allowed in that state was a violation of human rights and that sort of thing. So it really is a matter of the states governing themselves. The federal government has no jurisdiction over the internal operation of the states unless it interferes with a delegated federal authority. So the only reason that the federal government would have any say in what the state does is if the federal government has a made a legitimate constitutional treaty and the state refuses to comply with the terms of the legitimately constitutionally made treaty, and then the federal government would be able to intervene on some sort of level to ensure that the states uh, were to comply. But in the reality of the situation, it would be the other states that would be enforcing upon that state this matter of the Constitution. See, the states are supposed to be working as a free market system. And so if you don't like the fact that your state is over-governing, is become a statist kind of government, then you have two options. You work through the Republican form of government, not the party, mind you, the Republican form of government, and you change the administration of your state so that you change the laws of your state. If you do not carry the power and the political influence to make that happen, right, so you're a minority, and then what you do is leave that state for a state that best matches your principles. What we will find then is that the states that are more liberty-minded more freak market minded will be prosperous and those that are more socialist minded and more statist minded will shrivel up into bankruptcy and become places where nobody can live. And we let these things happen by not allowing the federal government to consume the resources of one state to pay off the losses of another state. It's not supposed to work that way. And that's how a constitutional republic works. The states govern themselves and the federal government stays limited within its designed and delegated powers. And the states who are the parties to the constitutional contract are the enforcers of the contract. 
Well, Chrisanne, it's clear you have uh, an extensive knowledge of the Constitution to the point that we could never cover it all in this interview today, (laughs) or even if we kept going for 10 hours or so. So why don't you just let everybody out there, before I let you go, know where they can find more information about your work on the Constitution and how they can contact you about bringing your course to them. My uh, website is chrisannhall.com, K-R-I-S-A-N-N-E-H-A-L-L.com. And I have... Um, over 150 articles that you can read. I've written five books that they can purchase. I have a DVD set of six hours of training that I do. I have um, a radio show and uh, that was just ranked globally number two by our podcast supporter. I do travel around the country and teach all these groups. I have all the classes listed on the website. And all you have to do is contact me on the forum and schedule uh, something with my assistant And we'll get you scheduled as soon as possible. And that's how I scheduled you for this interview. So I can verify that it does work. (laughs) It does work. It absolutely does. Uh, Chrisanne, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. You're one of the guests that many of my listeners have mentioned wanting to have on. And that's why we did this show here today. And I was really happy to have you here and, and learn more about the proper role of the U.S. Constitution, at least as it's seen by our founders. Yes, thank you very much. Chrisanne, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Alrighty, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Miss Chris Ann Hall, a very, very knowledgeable lady when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. She was a very highly requested guest by many of our listeners, and that's why she was on the show, just like a guest I had last week, Eric July. Now, if you're wondering, Mark, how can I tell you who I want to hear on the show? Well, there are a couple ways, and one great way you can do it is by joining our private Facebook group that is the Lions of Liberty Forum. You just type that into your search bar on Facebook, and we'll get you right in there. Just put a little request in, and as long as you don't look like a total crazy weirdo or a just meme spammer, I'll let you right on in to join the conversation. And there, I'll often ask my listeners who they'd like me to have on the show, what sort of topics i like to discuss. We get into all sorts of great conversations over there. Many of our past guests and contributors to the show have been in there chatting away. So we would love you guys to come over and join the conversation. You can also email me directly at Mark, that's M-A-R-C, don't put a K in there, please, at lionsofliberty.com, Mark at lionsofliberty.com. You can tweet to us at Lions of Liberty. You can also find our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Really, the only reason you shouldn't be chatting with us is if you just don't want to. And that's fine too, because we're happy to have you listening either way. If you are listening, I encourage you to leave us a rating and review over on iTunes or on Stitcher if that's how you listen. These are the kind of things that help us really boost the show and get it out there in front of more people in more of those earbuds to expand this Liberty conversation. And it's interesting speaking to Chris Ann Hall and learning more about the original intent of the U.S. Constitution, because when you hear her talk about it, you realize just how far beyond the original intent that the federal government has gone with its role in our daily lives in the roles of the states. The founders certainly didn't envision federal control over the medical industry, as they have in many ways. They certainly didn't envision the NSA, an apparatus that basically is an internal spying organization on U.S. citizens. I think these are areas we can clearly see there is no role for the federal government. There should be no role for the federal government. It's not a proper role of government, at least not government that people are actually consenting to. And that is certainly not the case in these situations. 
One exception that I would take with one of Chris Ann Hall's answers, and the exception is not on technical or legal grounds, because I can see she is definitely the expert on the Constitution. But when I asked her about the federal government interfering in states that were clearly committing and violating the rights of others, and this is something I've brought up before, and this is kind of where I have a problem with constitutional arguments about everything, about every little issue. Because not everything is about the Constitution when we're talking about rights, when we're talking about individual rights. Now, in some ways, the Constitution mentions slavery, and it kind of says it's okay in a way. Now, I don't think that that is the, necessarily the intent of the Constitution, but it's in there. So we can't take every little tiny word in the Constitution as a moral good, as a moral truth. Now, in my view, in a proper role of a federal government, this would be something that city-states created by private property owners actually get together and literally say, okay, we're creating this larger entity to, you know, manage disputes between us to perhaps protect us from foreign enemies and that sort of thing. Now, of course, we can see that our today's federal government is is far beyond this concept. However, if you're going to have a federal government, its main role should be the enforcement of individual rights to prevent individual rights violations. Now, Chris Ann Hall's view of the federal government's role in protecting individual rights within the states, now, that may very well be the proper role of the U.S. Constitution in the legal sense. However, if we're talking theoretically, if we're talking about rights and what the proper role of a properly constituted federal government is, meaning one literally created by property owners, literally created by people who have come together. Now, anarcho-capitalists out there might think this is nonsense, but listen, it's the same thing as your private insurance agencies in a way. It's when organizations, people contract out to others to protect individual rights, to, you know, protect them from foreign threats or what have you. It's the same concept, basically, but with a different name. But to me, if a government cannot step in and stop, you know, slave owners from abusing children, for example, well, what is the point of a federal government in that case? There literally shouldn't be one if that is a role that it's not properly designated to have. Now, to me, the role of government at any level should be to protect the rights of individuals. And a government at any level that doesn't do that is illegitimate or is at least not performing its role. Now, I realize that a lot of my views of what a proper federal government should do might actually be in conflict with the Constitution. And in the reality of that, I can see how that could be a conflict to some. However, I'm not here to necessarily always talk about the Constitution, to talk about history. It's nice to know our history. It's good to know our history. But I want to move forward. I'd like to move forward. And to move forward, we have to keep this conversation about individual rights, about the philosophy behind individual rights. That's where the focus has to be if we're really going to advance liberty in the world. I truly believe that. That's why I continue to do this show each and every week, more than once a week, twice a week for the Lions of Liberty podcast. And of course, every single Friday, we have John Odermatt's look at the Broken Criminal Justice System with the Felony Friday Podcast. You can get all this stuff by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty Podcast feed. This coming Wednesday, two days from now, I will have another guest in here. I've got Matt Kibbe, who recently spent some time working with a super PAC called Concerned American Voters in order to try to help elect Rand Paul to the Republican nomination and the presidency. Of course, we know now that didn't work out, but I'm going to have a conversation with Matt to kind of dissect why that might be. And if there is a future for Rand Paul or even other strong liberty candidates in our electoral process. Until then, folks, live long and live free.